Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Thursday, February the 2nd, 2023. It is currently 3.46 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in beautiful Abilene, Texas. Okay, maybe... Most people wouldn't consider Abilene, Texas that beautiful, but I am coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, and we're going to talk, are you ready? Law and gospel and church discipline. Oh my. Law and gospel, church discipline. Oh my. This should be an interesting conversation. There there will be much disagreement. I'm very aware of that. But I would challenge you, before I say anything else, before we dive into this, before I go to the email that sparked this entire episode, before I do that, let me tell you this. If you don't know, we have been working on a series on law and gospel, understanding law and gospel, and we've been looking at the proper distinction between law and gospel and all of the problems when those... Two concepts, law and gospel, become merged, commingled, and they end up almost without fail. The gospel basically gets destroyed, and the law stays there. All right. Okay, good. Uh, someone uh, is listening, and just let me know that they were able to listen today. So that's very good. I am glad that they are there. But to, And I want to make sure I state that again. Oh, um, over and over and over, law and gospel gets kind of you know, mixed together, and it always hurts the gospel. The gospel gets destroyed. I mean, you can't change the gospel at all without it being destroyed because it's there's only one gospel. There's only one way to understand it. And when you change it and mix it and, and bring in law, it begins to fall apart. But the law always remains. And the reason the law always remains is whether we like to acknowledge it or not, at our very core, at, at, at the very center of our being, we're very law-minded, so we tend to look at everything from a very law-based perspective, and a gospel perspective is very counter to that. It's counterintuitive. It's completely different. It's opposite. It's other than a law mentality, and we look at things from a very law-based mentality. We do this uh, from parenting, the workplace, school. Everything is very law-based. And so we have to understand that. And just a a simple reminder, when we speak of law, that's any time in the Bible where we are told to do something, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, whenever we're told to do something or forbidden to do something, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this, that is law. It's telling us what to do or what not to do. Gospel is anything that tells us what God has done for us. So law and gospel, and we must keep these distinct and understand the proper distinction between these two. So we've been working on a series, well over 60 hours of teaching. You can find that series on the Sermons 2.0 app. Look up Theology Central, then look for series and look for the series on understanding law and gospel. You may be able to just do a search for understanding law and gospel and find our series. Or you can download the Church One app. That's Church O-N-E. Church, O-N-E, download the app, do a search for Theology Central, choose us as your chosen broadcaster, and then look for the series, Understanding Law and Gospel, and please listen to all of it. I know you're like, wait, that 60 hours? I know. It's a lot of, it's a commitment, 
But I think we cover, we have covered so many issues that are very, very, very important. But guess what? No matter how many issues we cover, there's still more questions. There's still more to work on. That's why we are we are a long ways away from even being finished with the series. I mean, I don't even know. Uh, we'll, we'll be lucky if we can finish the series in 2023, but we are going to stay with it until we can complete the most in-depth study on the proper distinction between law and gospel that may have ever, that may have ever happened in the entire history of the church, because we are going to spend probably, it's going to, I mean, obviously it's going to be well over a hundred hours, probably well over 200 hours of, of, of discussion about it. Uh, someone says, uh, well worth the time invested. Thank you. That's I'm, I'm hoping, I'm hoping it is, but here's what happened today. I've been getting email after email after email about Romans seven, about law and gospel, and about Andy Stanley. That seems to be the the three big topics today in my email inbox. Andy Stanley, Andy Stanley, Andy Stanley. Everyone's losing their minds about Andy Stanley. Andy, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? And it's like, okay, everyone take a deep breath. I've already addressed Andy Stanley. I've addressed Andy Stanley years ago, but everyone's just like losing their minds right now. And of course, a lot of emails in regards to Romans 7 and the discussion and the kind of the mini series we did on Romans 7. Lots of disagreement, agreement, just lots of different things coming in about it. And then I received this email. Let me see if I can find it. At 2.05 p.m. today. 2.05 p.m. today. February the 2nd. Title of the email. Subject line. Law and Gospel and 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Now, my first thought was, when I saw the subject line, I'm like, oh no. All right, someone's going to disagree with me because we've covered 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 in our, in our series on law and gospel. So there was a part of me like, oh no, someone just finally came to that episode and they're not happy with me. And so they're going to be very, 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 very angry. And so, all right, what do I do? Because typically anyone who hears my discussion on that section of scripture, typically most within the just normal evangelical world, they're going to think I'm crazy, and then I'm thinking I'm wrong. And I understand that, but I think I've done a pretty good job trying to explain my perspective. But I, I was ready, so I opened the email. Here is what I found. Are you ready? Here we go. Thinking caps on. Here we go. The one thing that has been troubling me recently is how to view the New Testament vice lists. Now, these are lists that says, don't, you know, if you do this or this or this or this or this, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you do this, like, like it gives you a list of all of these bad things that you're not supposed to do because they're sinful and they are wrong, right? And I do agree, those lists do create some problems, right? Because when you look at some of these lists, first you have to ask yourself, well, wait a minute, is it only referring to the external action or is it referring to the internal thinking and desire and motivation. For example, if you have a list that says adultery is wrong, well, Jesus says, if I even look at a woman with lust, I've already committed adultery. So that means I can't be saved if I ever look at a woman with lust. 
that I'm I'm not saved? Wait, 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 how does that work? Well, so then sometimes we're like, no, 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 it's just the physical act. But wait a minute, Jesus condemned the mental. Well, it, it, I mean, sometimes you're going to look, but as long as you're not doing it a lot of times, well, what's a lot of times? If I only do it once every three months, I'm good to go. If I do it once every two months, like what's the, no, and a lot of times nobody has any good answers about this. So whenever you see these lists, there's lots of questions. So I understand that these lists can be troubling and how do we understand them and how do we process them? But let me read this all again. The one thing that has been troubling me recently is how to view the New Testament vice list, especially the often discussed vice list of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11 and light of the law and gospel distinction. So how do we understand these lists in light of the law and gospel distinction. Well, I'm just going to use the Bible that happens to be open right here in front of me. I've got it open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 9 through 11. You probably very much know this section of scripture. You've probably heard it read and probably have heard hundreds of sermons on this. Here we go. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. Oh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm quoting it from, an, I'm reading it, but I'm, I'm actually quoting from another translation. Let me read the translation I have in front of me. First Corinthians chapter six, verse nine. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Stop right there. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? This was a verse when I was a brand new Christian. I had a little Bible memory uh, packet. It was, a, it was like a little green packet. And I went, you had these little cards inside of it. And there was like two holders inside this little packet that you could like carry in your pocket. And um, you would pull out the card and you would you know, work to memorize it. And once you memorized it, you moved it over to the other side. And then you, that side would be for review. And then you would keep working on it. I think one of the very first scriptures was this, uh, maybe, maybe not the first, but it was clearly in that first pack. And let me read it again. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the, God's kingdom? Do you, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? The unrighteous will not. Now, I want you to just think about that for three seconds. What do, how do you understand that? That the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom. Well, what does it mean to be unrighteous? Well, to me, to be unrighteous is any lack of conformity to righteousness, righteousness, perfection, holiness. Anything less than perfect righteousness will not inherit God's kingdom. Well, forget the list. I'm finished. Everyone is finished, right? Hey, unless you are righteous, you will not inherit God's kingdom. Everyone should say, well, then I'm finished. I'm done. See, this is a, this is a standard. This is law. You have to be righteous to inherit God's kingdom. And immediately you should say, well, then I'm not righteous. I'm never going to be righteous. I'm finished. Some people believe that, see, this is what hap happens in salvation. Salvation comes and now gives you the ability to be righteous. And now you're going to be saved because of the righteousness you live out. And that you can live out a righteousness that meets this standard. But that's the most ridiculous. First of all, that turns salvation into an imputed, uh, an infused righteousness versus an imputed righteousness. But secondly, it requires you to live a life of total deception and deceit because there's no way you can convince yourself. I mean, you have to just be living in a land of denial. You have to be, you have to be self-deceived because there's no way you can convince yourself. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm living a life that shows that I'm going to be in heaven because I have righteousness. 
either you reduce this righteousness to just external action, but let me, again, let me go back to internal. I'll just try to be, I'll try to, I don't want to be too blunt, but let me just try to be blind. Let's say there's an individual. We'll say this individual's male. Okay. All right. Because we'll just, we'll just, I mean, I'm a man, so I can understand men better maybe than I can women. So let's say there's a man. All right. And that every night he lays in bed and his mind, maybe not for very long, maybe 10 minutes, maybe five minutes, maybe 15 minutes. He has these lustful thoughts. These lustful thoughts. He doesn't act on them in any way, shape, or form physically, but they're there. They're in his mind. Maybe thinks of a specific person or maybe not even of a specific person, just of a specific situation, but they're lustful. It's, it's, it's not righteous thinking. He doesn't act upon it. Nobody will ever know, right? Because he's in, in his room late at night. Nobody knows. He doesn't act upon it. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't do anything, right? But is that, is that, is that, does that count as being righteous enough to get into heaven? Does he get God's kingdom or is that unrighteous? Well, Jesus would say he's, he's committing sexual sin because it's there. Now, some say, well, it depends on how quickly it's there. If it's there just for a second and he gets rid of it, then, then it doesn't count. But I mean, he doesn't do it all the time. See, like some people will start trying to make all of these exceptions, but you can't make exceptions. The text reads, let me read it to you one more time. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unrighteousness. How do you understand unrighteousness? And I think it's any lack of conformity to the righteous standard of God in thought, word, deed, internally or externally. Well, then we're all doomed. We're all damned. There's lots of things people feel and think that they never, may never even act upon. That's unrighteousness. Don't even get it. We're not even taking into consideration the actual action, the actual thing. Now, what we, what we tend to focus on is, is the physical act of whatever, that they actually did something. But the scriptural standard is not just the physical act. We're condemned. So immediately I have to go, well, wait a minute then. How is anyone saved? And what's the only answer? Well, the righteous standard is met in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His perfect righteousness. He kept the law perfectly. He was holy. He was without sin. And his obedience to the law, his passive and active obedience, is imputed to my account. So by faith, I am made righteous in Christ Jesus. I am practically unrighteous because it's just the fact. You are, let, me, let me just state this for any Christian out there who's confused. You, are, you were unrighteous. You are unrighteous. You will be unrighteous until glorification when your unrighteous sinful nature is removed. As long as you have that sinful nature in you, you are unrighteous. And some, to some level, you say, well, I'm not as unrighteous as this, or I'm not as unrighteous as that. But now you're just trying to measure it according to some kind of human standard. According to God's standard, you're unrighteous, no matter how you want to modify it, no matter what kind of games you want to play. So the only way that I can say, yes, 
On one hand, I can say it's absolutely true. The unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom, but I will inherit God's kingdom because I am declared to be perfectly righteous in Christ Jesus because of an imputed righteousness. Salvation is not about making me righteous practically. Salvation is about declaring me perfectly righteous positionally. That's the only way this makes any sense. Forget the list. As soon as I read the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom, immediately I'm like, well, where am I going to find the righteousness to get in? In Jesus Christ, by faith, not by works. That's the only way to understand this. Now, though, but continue. Here we go. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people. Now, sexually immoral. An act or in thought? An act or in desire? Well, if you go to the desire, do you go to the thought? Well, and who's getting into heaven? Idolaters. Idolatry can be anything. We just talked this morning on the Today's Focus uh, broadcast. You can make a church an idol. Uh, Our heart is an idol factory. We place things before God constantly. So who's going to be saved? Adulterers. Again, you do not have to commit uh, adultery physically to be guilty of it. You don't. You can be sexually immoral. You can be an adulterer and never adulterer and never do anything physical in any way, shape or form. And nobody would ever know about it. It's in your mind. Now, as long as it stays there, it's good. It's good. Nobody's going to say anything, right? You're, you're okay. Now, the minute you commit the act, then everyone loses their minds and it's the end of the world. And now the person has to be put to death. But wait a minute. All the people ready to throw those rocks are probably all guilty of the exact same sin internally. Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, ad- uh, adulterers, males who have sex with males, no thieves, Greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. None of none of those will inherit God's kingdom. No one who does unrighteous deeds will inherit God's kingdom. Well, then how do we get in? Because we commit these deeds. Because in Christ Jesus, in my position, because of his imputed righteousness, those deeds are not seen. And the only deeds that are seen are the are the perfect law keeping of Jesus Christ, which is accredited to my account. Now, this is where everyone loses their minds in the text. Here we go. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Now, some will say, we see you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. I mean, you, you no longer do any of these things, but that's just not The reality is we are still guilty of these things in either thought, word, deed, desire, internally or externally. We are still guilty in some way, shape or form. So so this is what, so this is the way that again, the Christians play games. Okay. Well, it's not that you can't do any of these things. It's that you won't, your life won't be characterized by. So if your life is characterized by these things, then you don't get in. And immediately it turns into you getting in or you getting into God's kingdom based off what you're doing or not doing, which is a a salvation by works. So Christians play all these little games. No, 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 no. I mean, you can do it, but you, you won't be known by it. What do you mean? It says 
if we read this in the way some people want to read it, some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. This does not say, well, 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 I mean, you all, you'll just do it a little bit less or no, this would seem to be demanding. You no longer do it in any way, shape or form. So anyone who ever commits any of these acts, whether physically or mentally, external or internally, would be banished from the kingdom of God. And your salvation is based off what you do, not what Christ did. So either you have to be very dogmatic about a a demand for physical, basically, perfection and mental and internal perfection, or you have to say, wait a minute. I was like this. I'm no longer that in my position in Jesus Christ because I'm in Christ. His obedience, his righteousness is imputed to my account. It's the only way to understand this. And I think the reason we have to understand it is it says you're washed, you're sanctified, you are justified. Now we are justified by an imputed righteousness, unless you're going to believe we're justified by an infused righteousness. So in Christ, I am not like this anymore. Now keep listening, keep listening. And then uh, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now, back to the email. Let's see which direction they're gonna go with this. The one that, so I'm gonna go back to the beginning. The one thing that has been troubling me recently is how to view the New Testament vice list, especially the often discussed vice list of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Uh, um, Hang on. Let me read this again. I got things popping up on my screen. All kinds of notifications. Here we go. The one thing that has been troubling me recently is how to view the New Testament vice list, especially the often discussed vice list of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 in light of the law and gospel distinction. I agree wholeheartedly with you that a believer is no longer those things positionally because of imputed righteousness. But one cannot look at the vice list and others like it and not see the call for one to no longer be those things practically. I got no problem at all acknowledging that these lists challenge us not to be like this, not to do these things. I I completely agree that we are called not to do these things, that we should feel guilty about these things, that we should seek to turn from these things. Everyone should be able to agree on that. I'm not saying, hey, because I'm saved by an imputed righteousness, I can do whatever I want. No, what I'm saying, I'm saved by an imputed righteousness. So no one who is unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, guess what? I am righteous, but because of an imputed righteousness, not a practical righteousness. So my salvation is based off what? That I do follow all of these things in my position. My salvation cannot be based on what I do practically because if the practical standard is perfect righteousness, we're all going to fail. So then we have to start modifying the practical test to say, well, you may do it once or twice, but you won't do it all. That's not what these te- these texts demand perfection. The only way perfection is met is an imputed righteousness. But I do agree, these texts call us to live out. Let me state it again. This is the Christian life. The impossible task of trying to live out practically what is true positionally. We're never going to do it. And here's the thing. We can't judge that practical reality. We can't judge our salvation on the basis of that practical reality because the practical reality would condemn everyone every single day because we fall short of the perfect standard of righteousness. So I do believe we're called to do it. Now, 
But here is the question. How is church discipline to be enforced if all that matters is that one is no longer those things positionally? Wow. Good question. How do we work out church discipline with a proper law gospel distinction, right? If we say, look, everyone is a sinner practically, right? But what matters is that we are saved by an imputed righteousness. So what matters is our positional standard because our positional standard guarantees our salvation because it's based off the righteousness of Christ and his obedience. Well, now how does that play out, that reality play out in everyday church life when it comes to church discipline? All right. This is a great question because some could say, well, wait a minute. All that matters is the imputed righteousness. So live how you want. Don't even worry about church discipline. But I don't think the Bible will allow that. The Bible seems to call for church discipline. So how do we do church discipline in light of imputed righteousness? Okay, here's a couple of things I would say. Number one, I believe church discipline is the last, 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 absolutely last, 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 last thing you should do. I'm like, it, it should be the last resort effort. It should be the, the most, I mean, like you've tried everything in your power. You, the only time you're getting to church discipline is when every other thing that you can come up with has failed. You're like, you know, you're, you've pleaded, you've begged, you're like, come on, help me out here. Don't do this. And then you look at every way possible to avoid it. And the reason I say that is if church discipline is understood correctly, according to first Corinthians, it is turning someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, not their soul, but for the destruction of the flesh. That is a serious, serious thing to comprehend. It's not done lightly. We don't celebrate it. It's And you want to avoid that at all costs. I think it should be the last resort thing. Last, 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 last thing. You, you, you've exhausted everything else. You don't know what else to do. You're begging with the person. And, and you plead and with the person in every way, shape, or form to avoid it. You give them every out. Now, some people don't like that, but I believe you give them every out. Look, look, look. If you're going to stay a member of the church and just continue to do this and not, and you're not going to do anything about it and you're not even going to admit it's wrong, your, your church discipline is, I don't got no choice. Now, if you're, if you just say, well, I'm no longer a member of the church or I'm just, I, I you know, I'm, I, 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 you know what? I'm just, I'm playing games with Christianity, whatever. And they walk away. Then I don't think you church discipline. Some people are like, no, you still church discipline them. No, I don't think so. I think you do everything you can to try to avoid turning them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's my own personal feelings. Not everyone agrees with that. People want to, they just jump at the chance to church discipline someone. But here's the thing. I don't believe you church discipline someone who, when confronted with their sin, and they're like, yes, I'm struggling with this. Yes, I know it's wrong. I am not making any excuses. I know it's a sin and I keep struggling and I keep falling and I keep struggling. I need help. And they're willing to acknowledge it. They're willing to tell you their struggle. They're ready and willing to be real and open. I don't think that's church discipline. I think church discipline is when the person's like, yes, so what? I'm doing it. I'm going to continue to do it. I don't feel bad about it. I don't think it's wrong. I can do whatever I want and I'm staying right here in this church and I'm not leaving. Who cares what you think? 
All right, now, now you may have no choice. Then you may have no choice. I think we should do everything within our power to avoid church discipline. It's the last resort. But I don't think it, church discipline works this way, like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've got this list right here. You've committed this sin. We're going to church discipline. I don't think it works that way. It's like, no, you've committed. Let's say the sin becomes open. I think typically church, let's be honest, church discipline doesn't happen. And this is sometimes the inconsistency of church discipline that bothers me so great. Again, go back to what I said earlier. You could have some man who lays in bed every night and has all kinds of lustful thoughts. So biblically, he's committing adultery or he's committing sexual immorality of some sort. Even if he doesn't act upon it physically, his mind has entered that that place that Jesus says you've committed the sin already. He's guilty, but he hasn't committed the act. It's private, nobody knows. It's not even, it's just in his mind. It's not on a computer or a phone. So there's there's no browser history to get him in trouble, but it's right there. He's good to go. Nobody's ever going to know. He's never going to be church disciplined. But what's messed up is someone else who commits the external act, outward act, they get caught. Everybody's ready to church discipline them. And sometimes the people voting for the church discipline are people who are guilty of the same sin internally, and they're ready to throw the rocks. And it's like, whoa, 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 slow down, slow down, slow down. So I think when we approach church discipline, we have to first already just realize sometimes there's some massive inconsistency here, right? This person got physically caught with the act, but there's 30 people sitting in the pew who should be church disciplined as well if we're going to say the internal act makes them guilty as well, but nobody knows. So typically we know church discipline only usually applies to someone who's committed an external act and it's open and it's known and everyone realizes it. Church discipline then is the last resort. The person has been confronted and confronted and confronted and confronted and confronted, right? And and say, please, what? Stop doing this. Don't do this. Don't, don't. Come on, come on, come on. And then they're just like, I'm sorry. I'm going to just keep doing it. Then it's the last resort. But we got to see that there's an inherent inconsistency and just built into it, whether we like it or not. But I don't think we're like, you committed the sin. Now we're going to church discipline you. I don't think it works that way. Now, listen, if you believe, now I will, I'm going to, I'm going to add a important concept here. I want you to hear this out. If you come from a theological background that basically says when you get saved, you now, the old nature is completely gone. You no longer have the old nature. You now can say yes to God. You now can say no to sin. And you no longer what you were. You're no longer that practically. Practically, you're a new creature. The old is gone. Everything is new. Practically, forget the positional. Practically. And so now you have the ability to do this. You don't have to sin. Well, then obviously you would exercise church discipline in that theological system. Very different than one that's based off an imputed righteousness. You would be like, hey, you don't have to commit that sin. You're in trouble. I don't even know if you've given them a second chance. There was no reason for them to commit it the first because, and we've listened to those kinds of sermons that, that basically say you, you've been set free. You no longer have to sin. You can say no to sin. You can say yes to God. You can just stop it. Now, in every one of those sermons, we all watch them at some point in the sermon, back it up and go, well, you're not going to be perfect. Well, you're still going to sin. Well, well, 
I don't, I, we don't know how to process that such wild inconsistency like that. But I think if you're going to demand that, then yeah, you would demand almost a level of perfection. And any lack of perfection is simply because the person chose to do it. They didn't have to. And so therefore you can, you can bring church discipline. But in any church that believes the sin nature remains, and that we are not a new creature practically, we're a new p- creature positionally, would approach it, I would think, far more patient and far with far more grace and far more understanding. I think, I think the reality is the church is made up of sinners and sinners sin. And they still have a sinful nature and they're still going to fall short and they're still going to be unrighteous in some way, shape or form. And that they can fall, they can sin, and we still, we're not there to put them out. We're not there to turn them over to Satan. We're there to constantly help, pick up, struggle with, and work with, and understand that their struggle may be different than my struggle, but we're all struggling and we all have our sin. But when the sin becomes massively public, scandalous, and then they will not repent in the sense that they're just like, nope, I don't even think it's wrong. I'm going to continue to do it. I'm not, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And it's just full blown rebellion. Then maybe then we talk about church discipline. But it's got to be an attitude like, I, I just don't think it's wrong. No, if I'm like, no, I know it's wrong and I'm struggling and I'm having problems and I'm trying my best and I'm doing what I can. And, and, and I, I'm going to continue to do my best to avoid as much sin as possible in this. And I'm going to do everything I can. Well, then that, why would you church discipline someone like that? Church discipline sometimes it seems like we got to get all the sinners away from us. But all the people trying to get the sinners away from them are just as big as sinners as the sinners are trying to get away from them. We got to make sure the church, we got to protect the rep, reputation of the church. The reputation of the church should be we're all sinners because that's what we all are. The pro, I think church discipline is for the unrepentant. And when I say unrepentant, unrepentance by, by its very basic understanding and definition is a change of mind. Someone is like, I'm not going to change my mind about this behavior. I don't think it's sinful. Don't tell me what to do. Then we've got an issue. If they're like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I know it's a sin. I know it's wrong. I'm struggling. I, I, I'm trying my best to do the right thing in this situation. And I know that it's messy. Then you are like, okay, we're, we're, we're all right with you because we've all got our mess and we've all got our sin. It just may be different kinds. Actually, I'm going to say something that's going to be controversial here. I'm going to be saying, I'm going to say something controversial here. This is why, and and look, this, this is a dividing line in Christianity. And it comes down to how you perceive salvation. If you're focused on salvation by an imputed righteousness, you understand the practical righteousness is going to be, it's going to be 
less than adequate, less than perfect, and still going to be sinful because the sinful nature remains. So you already come into the expectation, everyone in this church is going to sin, and they're going to sin in thought, word, and deed continually. So sin is going to be a part of this. You approach it differently. But if you have some weird idea that, no, 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 when you get saved, yeah, you're saved by an imputed righteousness, but boom, now you have power. Now you can say no to sin. You can say yes to God. And basically your old nature is gone, and now you're new and you can do this, well, you're going to kind of demand perfection from everyone or pretty close to perfection. That changes the way church operates completely for everyone. So let me give you the example that I, that is going to just send everyone into a frenzy, but that's okay. Listen to me carefully. If you've got someone in your church, oh boy, I know I, know I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. And they're like, hey, pastor, I have same-sex attraction. I don't want a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. I want a relationship with someone of the same sex. I want physical intimacy with someone of the same sex. This is what I desire. This is what I want. This is what I struggle with. In fact, I have fallen into the sin countless times. I don't believe that immediately means church discipline. What I'm going to ask him, do you believe the Bible says it's wrong? Yes. Do you agree with the Bible that it's wrong? Yes. Are you struggling to stay away from the action? Yes. All right. Are you willing to acknowledge that the desire for that is sinful? Yes. Then I don't believe church discipline. I don't believe that person is is somehow not saved. I don't believe that person can't be a member of the church. Because by that logic, every heterosexual who has desires that are not right and who struggles with sin, they should be put out. It's weird, like, if same-sex attraction, it's like homosexuality, boom, the end. You're, you, when you become saved, you should never struggle with it ever again. But heterosexuals can struggle with every kind of sin and lust their entire Christian life, and it's okay. Why can heterosexuals still struggle, but homosexuals can't? I, I think it's the same concept. We, we all are unrighteous in our thoughts, words, deeds, and actions in some way, shape, or form, whether internally or externally. That is true of everyone in the church because we still have an old nature. And so we have to, we have to process Christianity through that lens. Okay, there's sin. I am not saying that we just like, okay, we're good. We're all, hey, we're saved by an imputed righteousness. We can just do whatever we want. I have never said that. Never said that. I don't want anyone to misconstrue that. I think there, I think whenever you have this conversation, people are like, you're just saying you can do whatever you want. I'm not saying that. The Bible tells me that I'm to pursue holiness. The Bible says to put off the old and put on the new. It's a constant struggle to try to mortify the flesh. We are constantly struggling. It's a fight. I'm willing to acknowledge that. But I know this, I can't judge someone's salvation based off the external things they do because they are saved by an imputed righteousness, not a practical righteousness. That's number one. And number two, when it comes to church discipline, I can't just start disciplining anyone who falls into a sin. And when I say, let me make make that very clear. I'm saying I can't discipline them as far as excommunication. Obviously, there can be discipline and there can be work with and struggle. There's... I think we have to classify what, which when we talk of church discipline, sometimes we think church discipline is just the excommunication, public humiliation, throw them out. I think there can be other 
areas of church discipline where we're we're going to work and we're going to we're going to do this and we need you to do this and let's work together and let's 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 try to get this back on track. I think church the church discipline as far as excommunication is concerned is the last 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 resort resort where you're turning someone over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That is a frightening, horrible, scary thought. That should only occur when basically people are like, look, I'm not, yeah, whatever. I'm just, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. I don't care. All right, well, there's nothing you can do. (laughs) I mean, they're leaving you with nothing you can do. So I think the proper distinction between law and gospel is that the Bible demands perfection, perfect righteousness and holiness. The only way that demand is met is never practically. So we can't look for practical fulfillment of that. It's only fulfilled in Christ by an imputed righteousness. Therefore, now I am righteous. Now I am none of these things. All of the, Now in Christ, I am perfect. I'm holy. I'm righteous. I'm not one of those things that are sinful. I am none of those things anymore. I'm not a drunkard. I'm not a swindler. I'm not a reviler. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a fornicator. I'm none of those things. In Christ Jesus. Over here in my practical life, guess what? I may be those things in all kinds of different ways, internally, externally, action, thought. Now, the key is, am I acknowledging that it's sinful and fighting against it? Or am I just saying I can do whatever I want? There is the distinction. There is the difference. The list found in the Bible are lists that are, I call them law list. They show you what the law demands, which is perfection. At the end of every one of those lists, you should say, woe is me. I'm undone. I don't do these things or I do these things. I don't, I don't stay away from these things. I'm guilty of all of these things. Who can deliver me? Who can save me? And it's only because of an imputed righteousness of Christ that I then can't inherit the kingdom of God. Not because of my righteousness, but because of his imputed righteousness. Now, practically, guess what? I don't care. You choose the list. I probably am going to find you on that list, either in thought, word, or deed. That's just the fact of it. How does church discipline work? Well, if you're over here committing these acts, what the church has to sometimes confront you when it becomes public and obvious. And then the key is if you're like, well, I, I, I know this is wrong. I admit that it's wrong. I'm trying. Okay, I, I'm willing to do anything. Then there's no church discipline. If the person's like, uh, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want. I've made up my mind. I'm not changing my course of action in any way, shape, or form. Now, again, we have to be very careful because there's an inherent inconsistency sometimes in church discipline. I've talked about it so many times. Some weird, there's some weird things that go on in churches with church discipline that I don't think anyone ever calls into question. I've talked about it so many times. We see this play out all over the place. That's why my my views on church discipline have greatly changed. Like when I was younger, I thought, okay, you know, church discipline, you know, we're going to fix all of these people. And then you kind of realize, wait a minute, sometimes this doesn't play out fair. Let me just give you an example. Give you an example. 
I use it all the time and it always ticks everyone off, but it has to be discussed. If the Bible is true, which we believe it's true, Jesus seems to identify that there are situations where a person who is married, who gets divorced, and who gets remarried, that they have now entered into an adulterous relationship. I know there's much disagreement within the Christian world going, no, no, no. If this happens, you can get divorced and you can get remarried. Others are like, well, no, you can get a divorce, but you can't get remarried. I know there's all those fights, but the bottom line is there are clear examples. It seems, put it this way, there is a clear possibility that someone could be, have, could have been married, got divorced and got remarried, and they are living in an adulterous relationship, biblically speaking, theologically speaking. That has to be at least a possibility. Jesus speaks of it. But guess what? Guess what happens in churches are, are all over the, the country. Now, in Catholicism, the people who find themselves in that situation are supposed to abstain. They're supposed to live celibate lives and not engage in physical intimacy so that they don't engage in adultery. Most Protestants say that's ridiculous and that's stupid. Absolutely not. So here's what happens. You have someone and, and I'm, I'm not saying every single person who's divorced and remarried meets this criteria, but let's just say, just we'll go with, just, just at least acknowledge the possibility of it, that there are churches that people were married, divorced, and remarried, and they are living in adultery according to the Bible. One, they're never church disciplined. Two, they're never kept away from the Lord's table. They basically are treated just like they're good to go, great church members. They may even get to teach Sunday school. Who knows? They may, they, they, they may get in all kinds of positions of leadership. For some, because in many cases, people just don't accept that. While they're sitting there, you could have a two teenagers who get caught in fornication, and next thing you know, they're being called onto the carpet for it, and they're in trouble. Wait a minute. Those people over there are living in adultery, and these two te- now these people are getting in trouble for fornication? Those over there are living in adultery. This person, these two people are now involved in some kind of adulterous relationship. And now they're going to be called on the carpet. They're going to be humiliated. What about them? And it's just really, who, who, who are we going to go after today? Those two people are involved in same-sex attraction. Boom, church discipline. But they're in adultery. It doesn't matter. It's very inconsistent. So I think we, I think here's the way we have to approach all the church. I think this is the way to really approach it. The church, this is just, we have to have this overarching philosophy. The church is made up of sinners. They were sinners. They are sinners and they will be sinners until glorification, uh, when all sin is removed and their sinful nature is gone. Because in the meantime, our sinful nature is very much present and active, and we're sinning in some way, shape, or form every single day in thought, word, and deed. We fail, just take one, one scripture, be ye holy as God is holy. None of us fulfills that. We're always in some kind of sin. We're in sin perpetually. We will never meet that standard. The church is made up of sinners. The salvation of those sinners is not determined by how good they can be, should be, would be. The the salvation of those sinners is based off an imputed righteousness. So the reality is sin is going to be a part of the Christian experience. Not saying it's excused, not saying it's right, not saying it's justified, saying it's just a reality. And guess what? It's messy. It's messy. It's messy externally. 
Oh, and trust me, it's messy internally because who knows what's going on internally? But we have this weird idea that somehow we can be like, no, it's not. No sin is going to happen. And if there's sin, we'll get rid of them. Well, you're going to be getting rid of everyone. We, I've said it over and over in this series. The church seems incapable of one acknowledging the reality of how sinful everyone is. We seem incapable of being able to acknowledge that. Number two, we seem incapable to know what to do once the sin manifests itself in some public way. We resort to name-calling, shame, humiliation, destruction, kicking, throwing people under the bus. Like we We don't know what to do other than just try to destroy people. We seem to have no concept of restoration. the reality of sin doesn't excuse it, but we have to live with that understanding of it. No one who's unrighteous will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, then nobody gets in. Exactly. Unless a righteousness that God demands is provided to us by God. And that's provided to us in imputed righteousness, not infused. So I am declared to be righteous, but in practice, I am not. That's going to lead to sin in the church. What do we do about it? We struggle together. We forgive. Love covers a multitude of sins. We pick each other up. We try to help. We try to help. We continue to preach against it. We call for trying to move against it. We call for working together. And sometimes in the most extreme situations, we may have to exercise church discipline. But that is when every other every other possible avenue has been explored and rejected. And when the person is basically like, I'm staying right here. I'm going to continue to call myself a Christian. And I'm going to commit this sin because I no longer think it's wrong. They're unrepentant in the and with no no just complete disregard. That's when you should. Now, everyone's. I mean, I've I've struggled with when to do it, when not to. I've struggled with it, and I try. And I've and every situation I've tried to avoid it at every single. I've tried every. I've done everything in my power to like no 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 no. Please please help me out. Please please like let's work together. Like because that's such an extreme thing. I just think sometimes, and I'll end with this, when we pick up that rock, right? I got a piece of paper here that I'm going to pretend like it's a rock. When I pick up that rock, I got that rock in my hand. I'm squeezing it. I'm getting ready to pull back my arm to throw it at that center, right? I'm ready to throw that judgment, condemnation, church discipline. I better stop for a second and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about my own sin? What about my own failures? What about my own shortcomings? What about how I fell and thought word and deed? People, I may not have committed one physical act. I may not have committed any external act. How about the millions of things I've done in my mind 
and in my heart. Should I be holding this rock? Should I be ready to throw this rock at that person? Should I be ready to destroy this person's life and try to humiliate them? Now, I'm not saying excusing anybody's sin. Just think maybe it would humble us a little bit to maybe drop the rock. I'm dropping the rock. Maybe we just drop that rock. Everyone drops their rocks. Everyone just drops their rocks. Maybe we just walk off. Or maybe we walk up better than walking off. We walk to that person who we were about to stone and go, look, I don't know about your sin. Never had that sin. Never struggled with that sin. But I've got plenty of my own. And if you're willing, I'm right here to get down in the mud with you. And let's work together to get out of it. Now, sometimes the person's going to be like, well, I don't think what I'm doing is wrong and I don't feel bad about what I'm doing and I'm not going to admit what I'm doing and I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. So shut up and walk away. Well, sometimes I don't think that means I go back and grab a rock. I think you just say, okay, well, then then that's what we have to do. And then there has to be a parting of the way or there may have to be church discipline. The church seems incapable of knowing how to handle sin sometimes. You can give me your thoughts on all of this. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. 1 Corinthians 6, I think 9 through 11. Church discipline, law and gospel. I know there was a lot there to try to process. Hopefully I did so in a meaningful, engaging way. I know it's controversial. But the inconsistency, when people start arguing about this, the inconsistency in their argument is utterly insane because they almost always approach it that we can be perfect, that we can say no to sin. But at the same time, at some point, they almost always acknowledge, well, we can't be perfect. Well, we're still going to (laughs) sin. Then clearly we're not free and clearly we're not a new creature because we still have an old nature. So then you've got to reestablish how you approach the entire subject. All right. Thanks for listening. News, if at yahoo.com. News, if at yahoo.com. Thanks to the person who emailed me this and to everyone else who's emailing me today about all of these issues. I'm working on each email and see what I can do to produce some podcast episodes about each one. I Look, sometimes I get more emails in a day than I can even hope to ever cover in podcasts, but I always try my best to do what I can. I mean, you get a, I mean, sometimes I get a hundred in a few hours. Well, I, I, <laughs> I can't, I, but I always do my best. I always do my best. And if you feel like that, I uh, didn't address your, your particular email, or you really, 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 really need me to, to talk about it. Just keep emailing me sooner or later. I'll try to get to it. All right. I always do. All right. News, at yahoo.com news, at yahoo.com. All right. Everyone have a great day. Love to get your thoughts on all of this. Email me or the Discord channel. Thanks. God bless.